0: Hello and welcome to the Idea to start up podcast, brought to you by Tacklebox. I'm Brian Scordato. Last week's episode spurred a ton of emails. Lots of people are clearly in a bit of a rut, and the good news is, lots of people are also clearly trying to get out of that rut. Hopefully, the pod helped. Give a holler as always with thoughts at Brian at GetTacklebox.com. On today's episode, we've got a treat. Jeff Sheldon, the founder of Ugmonk, stopped by to talk about his business, and it is my favorite type of business. It isn't a move fast and break things type of business. Ugmonk focuses on consistency and clarity of value. There's a through line to every product they make or curate. I think of this as a glacier business. Glaciers move slowly but powerfully, and so does Ugmonk. The hallmark of a glacier company is the mid-funnel the ability to keep a huge portion of customers you acquire from the top of the funnel engaged over long periods of time, so the lifetime value of your customer gets spread out over years. Jeff sends a monthly email with an incredibly high open and engagement rate, which reminds customers of Ugmonk and keeps them warm as the brand strengthens. Then, when there's a product release, like when Ugmonk launched Analog on Kickstarter in 2020, there's an engaged audience that takes action. Analog raised a half a million bucks. Today, we'll talk to Jeff about how to build a business like Ugmonk, how to engage customers, how to curate, how to be a glacier. It's a great conversation. We'll get to it after some smooth jazz. The idea to start a podcast is brought to you by Tacklebox. We're taking a few weeks off of the podcast ourselves to push our newest product across the finish line. It's the accelerator program we've been running since 2015, the one for people at the idea stage, the one for people with full-time jobs, the one that has pushed out companies worth over $250 million, but now it can be done at your own pace. You can start today. Well, you can't start today, but you can start July 15th. We're limiting the first group that'll get access, so sign up at gettacklebox.com backslash self-serve to get on the list. Back to Ugmonk. I'm really excited to have Jeff on the show. Jeff, welcome.
1: Thanks, Brian. Excited to chat.
0: Awesome. Uh, So maybe a good place to start is tell us about Ugmonk and maybe describe how you got started with the business.
1: Yeah, I'll give you the the 10,000 foot or the 100,000 foot view and we can dive into any specifics as we get into it. So I introduced myself as a designer by trade and an entrepreneur by accident, which probably (laughs) resonates with a lot of people in your audience. I got into this because I love making things. I love designing things. And I've always loved art and creating things and building things ever since I was a kid. And uh, that kind of translated into more of a graphic design career, which was short-lived full-time at an agency before I went. I jumped out and did my own thing back in 2010 is when I went full-time with Monk. And UggMonk started as a little side experiment to keep me busy because I can't sit, sit uh, still very long <laughs> to design T-shirts that I wanted to wear. The Internet was very different back then. The whole landscape of brands and running a brand was completely different. So it was a, it was a pretty like novel and unique thing to be able to make money selling a physical product getting a website up and all of those things. Now it's, you know, those barriers are so much lower, but I started just because I wanted to make things. I didn't start because I wanted a career running a lifestyle brand or running a design studio. It was just, I wanted to make them. People started buying them. I put all that money back into the business. And for for the last 12 years, I've been designing. I started in 2008 until now, been building ugmunk to what it is, but it's been a very slow and steady growth since those original shirts to where we are now with, with analog and gather and some of the other products that I've designed.
0: Yeah, it's, it's an amazing story. And I'm, I'm curious as to when you decided to go full-time on UGMunk. So you were at the, you were working at an agency. When did you decide like, this was the thing I can, I can switch over and quit the day job.
1: Yeah. So that was 2010. I started that job, graduated college, got married, Started Monk kind of as a side thing all in 2008. And then uh, that junior level design job that I was working at an agency gave me a lot of experience and just, you know, being in the real world versus in the classroom. But there was also that was also when the economy had just crashed. There wasn't a ton of work coming in. So I'm sitting there like I did everything that's on my plate. I got nothing else to do. So Mm -hmm. in that spare time, I started designing these shirts and coming up with this idea Again, at this point, it was not a business. This was—I I never thought of myself as an entrepreneur. I never took a—you know—I didn't go to business school to to build and sell businesses and and run big corporations and stuff like that. It was simply like the the idea of making something and making something physical, um, and then seeing other people resonate with that and spend their money to buy the thing that I made was like wow! Like that's a that's a crazy feeling to to you. Kind of get addicted to that. Um, and slowly built it from there. So I went full-time 2010, which was two years. I was kind of working nights and weekends. My wife and I were packing and shipping shirts every weekend and we'd like put them in tote bags (laughs) and walk them down to the post office. And it sounds kind of romantic (laughs) now, but when your apartment is overrun with inventory, it's not really the best way to like start your marriage. (laughs) So, um, And the, the, a lot of people ask when, how did I know? Like when, when do I go full-time? When do I leave my full-time and go full-time on my own thing? And that is like the million dollar question. It's, it's really different for every single person where you have people that are, if you have a a family and a mortgage and you have a lot of expenses that you, you know, monthly expenses, it's a lot harder to make that jump because you can't really change that. For me, it was like, before I had kids, my wife is working, we're just renting an apartment, expenses are really low. My salary was really low. So to replace those things, it was, it really didn't seem like a big risk at the time because it wasn't like, um, Mm. if Ugg monk didn't work, I couldn't go back and get another job. It was like the easiest time, but yeah, I put all the money back into the business for the first two years, every single monk product, every single shirt we sold all of that money, separate bank account going right back into the business and not touching it so that I could build up an inventory have like a little bit of a cushion before I, before I jumped.
0: And what did you think you were building back then? Did you have the the vision for what you have today or was it just sort of like, let's keep selling these shirts. Let's keep reinvesting and see where it goes.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think once I went full time, I had more of a vision of like, okay, I do need to learn the business side. I need to learn the operations and how to manage inventory and, and all that stuff. But I I don't really know. I think the the vision has slowly morphed while also staying the same for the last decade. And Mm -hmm. that's really the fun part for me is that like it's all about design. It's all about producing the best quality products we possibly can. When people receive our products, they want to tell their friends like we don't spend really anything right now on paid marketing. Hmm. It's literally people like finding out about it, getting the shirt, getting the the analog to do list system. Um, and telling their friends. And that's like always been the core from 10 years ago till today. But the vision for the types of products I think has changed and has has evolved from shirts to desk accessories to like fully designed objects from the ground up. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's fun because I get to kind of like put the runway out as I go, <laughs> as opposed to like, have this 10 year plan of like, here's where we're going to, you know, 10 year global domination of uh, you know, desk <laughs> accessories or something.
0: Yeah. And it's, it's unbelievable how you've been able to keep the like common thread through all of the products. So if you, you, when you sort of list them off and it's funny, cause I was talking to my fiance about this before the interview, I was like, oh, well they make t-shirts and also like, cause I bought an analog and she, I'm like, you know, the thing on my desk yeah. that they make that too. And she's like, wait, that yeah. that seems like two very different things. And I was like, no, well, if you actually look at the site, there's this through line between everything there. Um, I guess that's aesthetic and that comes from your design background yep. or just, you know, curation ability, but um, it all makes a lot of sense. So I guess that happening organically over the years, uh, it worked.
1: Um, yeah, it's really just been like a slow build, but that that's the common thread where you like the... It, we don't fit into any box. Like I can't even describe ugmunk monk. I have a hard time describing what I do <laughs> to people. Now I introduce myself as like a design studio because we're creating and putting out new ideas into the world. Those ideas are not necessarily all clothing. They're not necessarily mm-hmm. all desk accessories. It is the common thread is that aesthetic. And then like the combination of form and function where the thing is, it works as good as it looks is really what I'm trying to do.
0: Cool. I'm curious about those early days And, and it's, and to the, to a point you made earlier, it's, it's a completely different world. And I imagine that the tactics that worked to acquire customers in 2010 probably wouldn't work today, but I'm curious as to how you got those first customers that have sort of anchored the growth of the whole business.
1: Yeah, definitely a different world. I mean, Instagram wasn't a thing. Twitter was Mm. barely a thing. I don't even, I think it was early, early (laughs) days. Um, YouTube and all these, you know, everything was completely different online, the way we found stuff. And honestly, the way that I got my first exposure was getting featured on design blogs, T-shirt blogs, typography blogs. Like this is back in the day when we used to all go to blogs to find the content versus browse Twitter and click a link and then and go from there. So I got recognized on a few of those and Ugg Monk products started to get passed around on those design circles. And that was really it. It was like, oh, I, I should probably start an email list. You know, like it was all an afterthought. But people were finding it truly organically and telling people, other people about it. Like we did zero paid advertising to get our name out there, no sponsorships, nothing. So, um, making what I go back to, and I, I try to attribute most of the success to is what Seth Godin calls, uh, being remarkable and making remarkable Mm -hmm. products where someone actually wants to remark about the product to someone else. And if the products aren't unique and the products are just the same as everything else, you're probably not going and telling your fiance about it. You're not talking about this kind of thing. So, um, when you make something that people can't help, but talk about, that's in my opinion, the best form of marketing. It's like, I got to tell somebody like, I just got this thing. And then there you go. You've just unintentionally sold them on the product.
0: Yeah, I love that. I think it's there's something I'd be curious your thoughts on this. There's something I've been hearing a lot lately, and I think it there's a lot of survivorship bias out there from so so like a a company like yours has been successful. And if you sort of go back and connect some of the dots and you just sort of say top line, like, okay we then we created a newsletter and we were in design blogs and all of that. I think that there are a lot of companies starting today that think like, okay, well, so I'll start with a newsletter and I'll start by like pushing, trying to get into these blogs and sort of reverse architect or reverse engineer this thing that happened organically for you. And that's kind of why it worked. And then going backwards and saying like, these are the things that worked for people back then. So I'm going to make, I'm going to force these things to happen. And then I'll have the same outcome. And a lot of people not seeing that same outcome. I guess there's not really a question in there it's just something's been on my mind i'm curious if you think that mm-hmm. no like, but i think the point starting, the
1: point resonates yeah. because yeah like if you're looking if you're always looking to someone else like if someone's going to emulate what i've done with ugmunk it's physically impossible because you would have mm-hmm. had to start 12 years ago and you know and my brain works differently my goals are different like we are not a huge company we've we've not like we're three people, we're tiny. Like, and most of the time it's just been me for this, you know, me and part-time people helping out and our goals for what we're trying to become might be different than someone else's business where they do want to scale up and have a 50 person team or they want to get bought out or they want to get acquired. I think for me, like the, the part that I've tried to stay true to is like, what are the parts that I'm good at? And what are the parts that I really like doing? And that's mm. like coming up with new ideas and then executing those ideas and making them a reality, making those products come to life. Um, if you're not a product person, you're not a designer, like don't try to emulate me because you're going to be <laughs> miserable trying to do that. And I just love that I get to keep doing that and keep reinventing what we are as a brand versus necessarily like scaling my email list or, or scaling paid ads on Facebook, which some people are really good at. Like that's just not what excites me.
0: Hmm. And I'm, my head is exploding that you're a three person team. That's unbelievable. And I definitely want to dig into that, but I think the, the transition to product is an interesting one. I definitely want to talk about the analog Kickstarter. I think it is now, now knowing that it's a three person team, I would have said that was like a 10 person production team that put that together. (laughs) I think it's one of the best, it's certainly one of the, the top handful of Kickstarter or, or Indiegogo or crowdfunding campaigns I've ever seen. And I'd nerd out on these things constantly. Again, it's mm-hmm. how I found Ugmunk and we immediately sliced up the video and added it to like a big chunk of our marketing content for Tacklebox to the curriculum, just because I think it's so amazingly done. And it's interesting you mentioned Seth Godin earlier, because I think like a lot of the way that he thinks about marketing, you can kind of see that that flow through into the video. But I'm curious about like starting at the beginning of analog um, and maybe describe what it is for people who don't know, and then talk about the process of how that came to be.
1: Yeah, I mean, we could spend hours and (laughs) and episodes going through all this, but a couple of things just to hit off right off the bat. So the, I was going to launch analog last March. Well, last March was when we got locked down and things weren't happening (laughs) it put a wrench in all my plans to shoot the video. I was going to actually hire a whole studio. We are going to, I was going to go down mm. to Austin and we we're going to film that. And then it was like, how many more weeks are we going to have to wait to be locked down? And well, turns out here we are a <laughs> year later and it's still not normal. So I ended up shooting, editing and producing that entire video myself here, like in my house, um, <laughs> and spent probably the entire month of may like tweaking and just going deep on all things, video and, um, lighting and editing and storytelling and, and, you know, some of that I've done a little bit in the past. So again, I'm not telling everyone to go pick up a camera and shoot their own video, but I had a blast working within those constraints. Like I can't have anyone do any of this. I have to figure out how to do it. Um, mm. and rewrote the script and, and my brother and I, he's my business partner. We like rewrote the script and the storyboard at, you know, probably 50 times trying to really hone in on the things like, let's cut that entire section. Let's cut that entire section. Let's change this part. To get analog, the message of analog across, um, but yeah, shot it one camera, one lens, one light, like super DIY. <laughs> I posted some stuff on Twitter where it's like <laughs> you see the mess. It was it's it's really a very low-fi production, but I wanted to come across um, as if we spent you know twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars on that video, like a, a studio would produce. So um, that's just a little bit of a, an aside. Everything we do is very DIY, even though it may look polished and you know where I'm sitting here is, is actually a bedroom in my house but I've made this kind of like the Ugmon corner where we do photo shoots and stuff um mm. but the product itself I can touch on just where analog came about and how I kind of brought that to life from idea in my head to launching a kickstarter to to having thousands and thousands and thousands of them to ship so I'm very distractible and in my world uh I you know browser tabs just keep opening browser tabs, or I keep looking, you know, you check your phone, you stare at your phone, you're looking at it, you're like, why am I even looking at my phone? I can't even remember why I picked this thing <laughs> up. Um, so I've always used a paper to do list to kind of complement what I'm doing. And it started with just regular little index cards, having an index card right below my monitor. I, d- I couldn't ignore it. I couldn't switch away from it. It just stares at me was the start of analog. And this is probably like four or five years ago. I didn't think about turning it into a product for a while. Cause it seemed so simple. Like, Hey, you can go down to the dollar store and get index cards. Like what's stopping people. But the more I used it, the more I created a system, the more I tried to get back into digital task management. I tried to use the bullet journal. I tried to use all these other things that people seem to like rave about and I couldn't do it. Like I just, I didn't have the attention span or I, I couldn't get my work to, to translate into one of those systems so i went back to the old index card and i'm like let's design a nicer version of this and that was really the start of analog and and the idea of like i think we can make this a, an actual ugmunk product and then designing the physical cards picking out the paper stocks like honing in on every tiny little detail all the way down to like the card holder this the the wood card holder um obviously you can't see it if you're listening to this right now but you can see it on our site and the, the prototyping and the design around that card holder, I spent months and months and months just trying to perfect so mm-hmm. that it would be something you'd want on your desk. And it's actually enjoyable to grab a card from the back and slide one under the stack and then prop it up in front of you. Just stuff like that. So there's there's a long history. This wasn't like an overnight three-month, had an idea, let's launch it, half a million dollars on Kickstarter. It was a very slow build of kind of assembling all of these things and things I'd learned, ways I've grown as a as a designer and as a entrepreneur and bringing all these things together to launch it.
0: It's, it's a great product. I'll, I'll obviously link to it and and others in the show notes, but um, I'm curious if you were like the dog who caught the car, because I know the, I don't I'm just curious as to what you what your expectations were when you launched the Kickstarter and then to the point you made or or kind of breezed over earlier, like all of a sudden you got to ship thousands and thousands of these things because Mm -hmm. of the success. And I think I forget what the exact final number was, but it was it was over a half a million dollars. Right. Committed. So I'm curious as to yeah, what the after, expectations after the, were. Yeah. yeah so, when we launched, ahead, so this is actually
1: my second time around the block and I, I launched the a modular desk organizer called Gather. I launched that in mm-hmm. 2017. Learned a whole lot of things about going from zero to shipping thousands and thousands of products and what not to do and ran into a lot of issues. That's a whole another story about like, here's 15 things not to do. Ran into challenges, manufacturing overseas turned out to not be as easy as it seemed and Shipping, having someone else do the shipping. We worked with a 3PL to do all of our shipping. That turned out to be a disaster. So we learned a lot of things we weren't going to do. So when it came to analog, we had big hopes for it. Launching a Kickstarter in the middle of a pandemic, I didn't know if that was a good thing or a bad thing. People were working from home and I felt like the product itself, like analog itself, the cards could help people because they're, you're juggling more than you've ever juggled being stuck in a, a house. If you have children or just multiple home and work responsibilities. So my goal, our goal on Kickstarter was, I forget what we set our actual goal on the Kickstarter. It might've been around 10,000. Our big, big, like this would be crazy kind of goal was to hit a hundred thousand dollars. And we did that in like the first day. <laughs> so it was just like, Okay, this product is again—it's—it's it's remarkable in the ne- in the sense that people like were just reposting and sharing it. Like, this is what I need. This is the thing I've been looking for. I love making lists. This is a better version. This looks nicer. And it—it it took on a life of its own. And then it just was like, from then on, the Kickstarter picked up momentum, and we had people, you know, talking about how they couldn't wait to have it in their hands. On the flip side, when you make something that you have to ship six thousand plus units of, uh, that involve Natural materials like solid walnut and and paper product. It's not quite as easy as just like pressing send on an email and every all six thousand <laughs> people get it. So we were gonna we we manufactured the entire thing in the U.S. I didn't want to deal with overseas manufacturing again because I felt really disconnected from the process and the quality wasn't there. We were gonna ship. We did ship all of the products, all of those pre-orders, ourselves from our new warehouse uh, here in Downingtown, Pennsylvania. And that's a massive, massive task. We literally just wrapped up uh, you know, about a month ago getting through producing and getting everything to spec, shipping, getting everything fulfilled to backers. So even though I've been around the block before on this, there still ended up being challenges in scaling. Making 600 might've been fine, but 6,000 was not as easy as we thought.
0: And what, I'm curious as to how, was there anything that you did on your end to sort of accelerate that growth i remember i mean I, I think we mentioned this before we before we hit record but it seemed like 10 to 15 and granted i nerd out on this stuff but mm-hmm. 10 15 20 people sent me separately sent me analog day 1 and i'm curious if you had seeded that with anything tactical or if it was truly just mm-hmm. organic
1: so yeah that was that's very strategic so i don't want to make it sound like I just kind of threw this thing up in the air and wow, look, everyone's talking about it because that can come across the other way. Like, oh, I just just struck a chord. There's a lot of luck involved. Um, But I actually, so I did a lot of pre-launch building, reaching out to people who are, you know, getting people to test analog, getting people interested if they had an audience and wanted to help post about it, not incentivizing like, hey, here's a thousand bucks to post about it. It was just like, if you think your audience would like it, here's the product, here's a sneak peek. And spent spent a lot of time on the strategy to to get that day one burst. Mm -hmm. And honestly, the biggest way the biggest reason why we had such an instant funding, like a big burst in funding was because I've been building an email list for the past 12 years. And like the people on my email list signed up voluntarily. They open my emails. They engage with emails. Crazy high open rates, crazy high click rates. I'm actually pulling people off my list if they're not engaging just because I'd rather have a small list of super highly engaged people Hmm. and that email list when I send stuff to those people I know those are engaged people that have bought from us two three four five six times before and launching to that audience was a huge part of why we saw that initial burst
0: yeah I think that's It's funny when people, you talk about it like an overnight success, like a product like that. And Mm -hmm. it's like, yeah, well that's, there's no such thing. Um, Yeah. It's
1: a 12 year overnight success, right? (laughs) Like that's, that's what it is.
0: I'm curious as to what you would. So if we have a lot of, um, people listening who have ideas and they're thinking about, so it sounds like, and obviously I don't want to put words in your mouth and correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like Kickstarter was less of a validation and fundraising to execute than our marketing channel. Mm-hmm. It was, it was more of a marketing channel for you for, for folks who are trying to actually like use Kickstarter as a validation tool to see if they should actually build the thing or not. Do you have any advice in t- and I, I realize it's completely different, but any advice or thoughts on how to run a campaign to get it in front of a lot of people without having the, the backing of something that you had?
1: Mm-hmm yeah i mean because you can't build an email list of of real engaged people overnight like there's just no way you can can't spend money to do that like these are people that when i send an email out i get all these replies and then i reply back like this is a huge part of the relational aspect of what i'm doing Mm -hmm. um launching on kickstarter to validate a product regardless i think is a good idea because let's just say analog flopped at least i wouldn't have made a thousand of them or you know Mm -hmm. had all this stuff sitting in a warehouse like oh this didn't seem to, to resonate we hoped it would go big but I think having, a, having an audience of some sort is really the first step before launching on Kickstarter. That audience doesn't mm-hmm. have to be thousands of people. I mean, it could literally be 100 people. But having some, some group that's engaged with what you're doing is really important because dropping something on Kickstarter and hitting launch doesn't do anything. I mean, there's yeah. thousands of products or uh, projects on there. You're not going to just strike gold because you suddenly pressed launch and then people are on Kickstarter. It really works the other way where you're bringing your own people first. You're bringing some validation, even if it's not enough to reach your funding goal. Then Kickstarter sees that and they say, hey, there's, you know, there's activity here. They kind of boost it to more people. And there's a lot of people browsing Kickstarters that end up finding it. So for us, that was on a larger scale. Let's give it to our audience. And then it trickled out way or it rippled out way bigger than anything we've ever done. I mean, the the amount of views on the video and the amount of like it just went viral in a sense where people were just sharing it on their own.
0: Yeah. I think it's, it's sort of a culmination of a bunch of, a bunch of different factors of the audience you've built up, the trust you've built up, and then it being to your point, a great product that you had really honed over years. And I, I can't, honestly can't, I'm, this is not like a plug. Like I genuinely think it's one of the best things. Uh, it's been one of my best productivity tools. I'm similar in that I'm all over the place. Cool. So, a question on curation. Ugmunk has products that you design and build in house, and then a selection of curated products as well. And I'm curious as to how you, but like it's very clear that those products are, there aren't that many of them, and they're obviously carefully mm-hmm. selected. I'm curious as to how that process goes from you selecting the products and then also. Do you work with those brands directly do you interact with them directly or do you just list them on your site yeah i'm i know that a lot of founders have ideas for curation platforms so i'm curious as to how that goes
1: yeah yeah we kind of do it the long hard way we work directly so The way that it came about was a few years ago. We've talked about this for a while. There's products that I like. There's products that I use. There's things that I'm never going to design and reinvent, like this Kinto tumbler that's on my desk. It's like a double wall, just a really nice water bottle. It's aesthetic. It's just great. I'm not going to try and make the Monk version of that. So I would mention these things in passing or in my five things I'm digging emails. And people are Mm. like, cool. And I'm like sending them to their site and getting it. And we said, what if we brought in a collection a curated collection of things that we like that complements our products, you know, works alongside them. And for that, we've just worked directly with these retailers and brands. And then we can buy wholesale from them. We'll set up a a partnership and we'll buy from them and resell, but we'll physically warehouse the product. Like I said, it's not Mm. the easy way. It's not drop shipping. It's not like we're physically getting all this product in and then we're, we're shipping it out. So when somebody receives their Ugg Monk order, they might have, an analog set, a -hmm. Kinto water bottle, um, an Ugg Monk shirt, all in the same box versus like three packages from some from Amazon, some from here, some from there. So it's not a, yeah, it's it's certainly just like a way of doing it that we think feels best for the customer. Like it's all enveloped under the um, or umbrella under the Ugg Monk brand, but it's not necessarily like the wire cutter or some of these other like curated sites where they're just, handpicking things and then drop shipping or linking out to, to other sites.
0: It's so interesting how like the, it's funny just even talking to you, like the site and the newsletter and everything makes more sense because everything has this very specific purpose of like potentially harder in the short term, but more sustainable and lasting and like builds a foundation for the long term. It's Mm -hmm. like, it's awesome. And that's, that was my question is like the drop ship can feel, It can feel fragmented from the a brand if there's like to your point some things coming in different types of boxes at different times and all that so it feels consistent cool um awesome so i've got one more question on uh Monk stuff and then i've got some other some curveball questions i i i say that i'm an essentialist and i try and be an essentialist and i i do believe that you know 99 of the stuff that people do doesn't really matter and one percent drives everything I'm curious if there's anything that comes to mind in terms of like small things that have taken a very small amount of your time, but have driven an enormous, uh, driven enormous impact for Monk.
1: Man, that's a good question. That's a, that's a tough one. I don't know that I have uh, (laughs) something that comes to mind immediately. I think maybe this is an abstract way of answering it, but the human aspect of running a business has to flow through everything for me. Like as soon as you know some, someone's writing a press release and acting like a robot and talking to their customers and just hitting people over the head with coupons, it kind of, like the, the rest of the business to me has lost its essence of like humanity. And at the end of the day, like if you and I were in person sitting down talking, like that's this is basically what we're doing, I want our brand to talk to you like that. And like that's how we treat customer service. That's how we treat our our sales copy, which is not, it's just, writing descriptions about how we would talk. Um, and, and keeping like the human aspect is it's not a small thing. Cause it's actually pretty, uh, it's a big thing, but it's a small thing that operates through every single decision-making process that we do. It's like, mm. how is this going to make our customers feel on a human one-to-one level, not a one-to-one million level? Like, is this ad going to convert at point whatever percent it's like, no, what is this one person's experience? And that's hard because it's like, you have difficult customer situations and things where it would be much easier to send an auto reply and, and kind of wash over this thing. But um, So I don't know if that answers your question directly, but that's like, I think something that people miss as they're building companies. They think of the company separate than the human and people. It's like, we're all people. We need to keep that as part of it.
0: Yeah. I love that, that prompt of like, how is this going to make the customer feel with every interaction? Because you probably don't get that many. If you think about, we talk about this from a marketing perspective where you know, you probably need four, five, six interactions with a customer before they're going to do anything realistically, unless, mm-hmm. you know, it all depends on how trusted the source is. If it's a referral from a trusted friend, maybe they only need one interaction. But if you're talking about digital interactions or newsletters or whatever, um, and you probably don't get that many interactions with customers. So it may seem like from, if you're running the business, there are lots of things happening with lots of nodes and lots of customers, but per a customer from a unit economics perspective, it's probably Mm -hmm. three, four interactions that are make or break. And if you screw one of them up, that's 25% of your brand. That's interesting. Cool. Yeah. I like that answer a lot. Yeah, And I think
1: doing things that don't scale, I I like to do things that don't scale because it's like the, the physical limitations of we moved into a new space. Like we can physically only warehouse certain amount of product. Like we just, we will run out of space or like replying to customers emails. When someone writes in and I write back, like, I don't know. Obviously I can't do that for everyone and I can't spend all my day on email, but there is something about doing things that like can't be replaced by something else that I I think is special. And like, Oh, I got an email back from you. It's like, well, yeah, I'm just a guy trying to do my thing, you know, (laughs) trying to design and make products too. So yeah, I, I just, I like that approach. Again, this is me. This isn't like, the Bible on how to build a business, like you're never going to get IPO doing a business this way.
0: Yeah. And I think that that's, that's my, my next, and I guess my, really my last question on, on the business is like, how do you think, or have you ever considered that type of growth? Have you ever considered taking, you know, funding or some sort of financing or that type of growth? Or is it always just, Are you just don't even worry about that. This is the type of business you want to run with this type of growth.
1: Yeah. I mean, I've never considered it. Kickstarter gives us some of that funding because we can, we can get pre-orders, we can get validation. We don't owe any investors anything. Um, I really like the fact that I have complete autonomy of what I'm doing. There's, there's no Q2 goals. If we miss the goal, that's on me. (laughs) It's on me and my three person team. Like there's a different level of, there's a different pace that we're able to do things really, really intentionally as even pushing off product launches for months or years um, that I love way too much than to like pour gasoline on the fire and see it go through the roof and, you know, more money, more problems kind of thing. So I've been really, really fortunate that I can, I've been able to to go from part-time to full-time, put all that money back into the business, build a physical inventory, slowly put one foot in front of the other. I mean, we're talking about 12 years of time compressed into this like 20 minute interview. So there's a lot of stuff that went into that, but I don't really think about taking funding. I mean, I've had, we, I get letters, you know, from people wanting to invest and people wanting to to buy out parts of what I'm doing. And it doesn't make sense. Like they would have to buy me at this point. Like it, yep. is too closely tied to me. And I'm not saying we won't ever sell. Like maybe there comes a point where, I get, you know, I'm old and I'm no longer able to create products or I never, no longer want to do this. But for now, I would rather have like the ability to forge my own path for the rest of this career than sell out. And then, then what, start over and do it again? Like, I don't, <laughs> I find fulfillment in doing it, I guess is what I'm saying.
0: Awesome. I love that. Um, and I love that you, that you 20 minute interview, you still got to sneak a little biggie quote in there. Um, <laughs> cool. So my last questions are um, theoretical questions, which I understand you just kind of said you didn't want to start anything else, but I'm, I'm gonna ask it anyway. So I'm curious if I said, if somebody offered you you know, $500 million for Monk, and you said, you know it's screw it and you sold it. And then I said, all right, you've got to start a taco truck tomorrow. Um, how would you go about, how would you think about that? Like, what would you, what would your steps be? How would you think through the process of starting a taco truck?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I won't turn down $500 million. Let's be honest. <laughs> uh, someone's going to wave that in front of me. Um, starting a taco truck, man, that there's a, so much that could go into that too. We know where consumers are right now, as far as social media goes and, and, and starting, you know, getting on an Instagram, probably TikTok. I know nothing about TikTok and, and the latest things, but thinking about where the people are that are going to be interested in that I would think a lot about branding, a lot about the name of the truck, and a lot about why people would come to that taco truck versus every other taco truck. Do something crazy, you know, make make it where you only sell one kind of taco with no additions or subtraction. Like, do something that's never been done. Otherwise, it's a, you're in a sea of taco trucks. Like, who cares? So, I, I mean, it'd be a fun experiment. It'd be a fun thing to like spend a day like doing that exercise and trying to come up with what i would actually do i would probably make the truck look a very certain way that would just stand out like you would you wouldn't be able to drive by it and, and miss it it would just be uh something about the design of the truck that would catch your eye so oh man that that's a that's a fun thing to think about
0: and i yeah, love tacos i, I like that idea yeah <laughs> i like that idea of like that is a starting place where it's like you will not be able to drive by this truck and not say something about it or like share it with somebody and then sort Mm -hmm. of work backwards from there. I love that. That's really interesting. Someone I've asked this question. I I've asked it to a bunch of the, a lot of people who've come on who are design focused. And, um, one answer I liked was monochrome tacos, where they have like you order by color and it's like red, blue, or green. And every ingredient is that same color as opposed to flavor. I thought you might like that. Um, I love that answer. That's great. Finding customers where they're at. And then I would
1: say one more plug, one more plug for um, Seth Godin, his book, the purple cow. That's like the entire book is about this. You know, you drive by cows all the time. You're never going to stop. This is where I'm getting these, you know, where I was inspired from these ideas. Mm -hmm. And I think that translates to what I'm doing now, but also in this theoretical taco truck idea.
0: (laughs) Awesome. I love it. Um, This is super, there's so much good stuff in here. I really appreciate you taking the time. I won't take any more of your time. Um, oh, I guess I'll, I'll ask one last question for you, actually. Um, I heard this recently. I really liked it. It was an interview with, um, I think it was Mark Andreessen. I, was, I, I forget if he was interviewing or, or being interviewed, but basically the question was, if you had a billboard that entrepreneurs had to pass on their way to work every day, what would you put on the billboard? And I know this is a tough question to, to ask you on the spot, so I'll babble for a second and let you think about it but the idea of being what is, what is the thing that's so important that like that is, should be reinforced every day and would help them with their businesses as they start to build them.
1: I'm going to say, which is one of our designs. Uh, we don't have it in stock right now when well, we have it on our coasters, enjoy the journey. Like mm. if you're not enjoying the journey and the process of building the thing, then what the heck are you building this for? Like, <laughs> so many people are you know if they're if you're always talking about how terrible it is and how hard it is and all that and don't get me wrong it's hard there's days where you want to cry and you want to throw in the towel because there's (laughs) there's going to be those days but if you're not actually enjoying the process of building it and enjoying that journey the the pot of gold at the end is not really going to solve anything like it's Mm. it's really like i love that i get to go into work and do something that i love and not all aspects of it but most of the time um, get to do something that i'm truly passionate about so that's what I'd say. Enjoy the journey.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much. I'll, I'll put uh, my favorite products in the show notes analog being top of the list. Um, and thank you so much, Jeff. This is awesome. I appreciate it.
1: Yeah. Thanks, man.